in my world, long form content, particularly in podcast, is in the really dweeby deep tech stuff. There's a brand called Packet Pushers. There's like one guy in the US and two, two people in the UK. And they have a little bit of earned media, but mostly it's vendor-sponsored deep podcasts about oh, these particular APIs and that particular platform from Juniper that just came out and let's get behind this and let's open the hood and see what we got here. That's long form, very successful, enduring content. That brand has been around 10 years and they've made money incrementally every year since they launched. And that's because the scarcity of the tech info in every other realm, even Gartner and Forrester don't get super dweeby technical. You know, the, the analyst firms deal in implications, right? How it's going to affect business overall or this segment, that segment. So if you're really technical, you have to go to a podcast. Welcome to the Earn Media Podcast. My name is Eric Schwartzman, and I'm a digital marketing consultant based in Santa Monica, California. But I started in earned media. Before the internet, earned media was media relations, or rather the part of public relations that's focused on message delivery to and through impartial, unbiased news media sources. Today, online influencers, bloggers, podcasters, and other content creators or makers have expanded the chorus of third-party voices to speak to and through. But at the same time, the migration of ad dollars to the web has gutted the trade and mainstream media landscape. So while there may be new influencers and bloggers out there to pitch, when it comes to ad-supported media outlets, there are fewer reporters and fewer opportunities for coverage. And keeping track of the news media has always been challenging, but now it's more challenging than ever. Our guest today is Sam Whitmore. He is a former media columnist for Forbes.com who spent 14 years as Ziff Davis, 12 at PC Week as a reporter, editor, columnist, and the editor-in-chief, and as an on-air host for ZDTV before leaving to launch Sam Whitmore's media survey in 1998 which provides tech media analysis and consulting to tech PR pros and media buyers. Sam, welcome. Eric, good to be here. But before we get started, I wanna tell you about something really cool that we're doing in the next episode. So the number one trend that digital marketers need to know, according to the Talkwalker 2021 Social Media Trends Report, is that young consumers are more socially conscious than ever before, and they want to engage with brands on topics that had previously been taboo, like mental health and inclusivity and social justice. On the next Earn Media podcast, we have an expert panel of B2B social media influencers to discuss the Talkwalker 2021 Social Media Trends Report, which predicts the top 10 social media marketing trends for 2021. Now, the report is at ericschwartzman.com forward slash Talkwalker. So download the report, and in the next podcast, Jenny Dietrich, Neil Schaefer, and Christina Garnett are going to go deep on the top social media marketing trends for 2021 from Talkwalker, which is a social media analytics platform. 
Uh, some of the other top trends for 2021 include the rise of digital disinformation, mimetic media, the four C's of COVID content, and much more. Again, the Talkwalker 2021 Social Media Trends Report is at ericschwartzman.com forward slash Talkwalker. So join us for the next episode and our expert panel of social media influencers. Sam, welcome to the Earn Media Podcast. Thank you, Eric. Been a long time. It's been a long time. So what is Sam Whitmore's media survey? What is it? It's, it's a consultancy designed to help the senior AEs of the world pitch more effectively. That ranges from account coordinators and interns all the way up to founders in terms of comms agencies. And also we have uh, Autodesk and Oracle and lots of tech vendors too, but primarily it's a service to help bring a tailwind to the put upon overworked publicist that's trying to get a message across to B2B and B2C media. And what led you to launch the media survey? It was a total accident. I was working at Ziff Davis in the event group, uh, the people that ran Comdex and then went on to do other trade shows. And there was something that went down that I felt was unethical and I quit on principle, walked out of there, gave them two weeks notice, but I didn't have a plan B. So one day after my notice, I sent an email to PR people. And I said, now that I don't work at PC Week anymore, I'm going to tell you the secrets. Okay, if you're pitching InfoWorld, don't say this, say that. If you're pitching Computer World, don't say that, say this. And I went through this whole cheat sheet kind of thing. And every single PR person that I wrote, wrote back and said, oh, is that why you quit? Oh, that's cool. Nobody does that. So I thought, maybe that's what I should do. And that was 22 and a half years ago. So I backed into it. Got it. Hey, what makes technology PR different from other industry specializations? Oh, my. Um, in the old days, back when Bill Gates and Michael Dell were trying to convince people that technology was important, um, technology was sort of a discrete thing, right? It was sort of a silo. And now... Technology, as you well know, is inherent in every aspect of human life. And you got cops knocking on your door saying, hey, can I use your uh, ring doorbell video? We thought we saw a prowler. I mean, where does it end, right? So the thing about tech edit is that it used to be sort of a, a section like sports, right? Had boundaries around it. And now it's very difficult for editors and publishers to really put boundaries around tech because it just infuses everything. Yeah, it's it's basically a part of every other beat at this point. But and you so know at the tough. time and most examples you were you were mentioning were consumer technology, you know, back in the days of Walt Mossberg and and uh, you know David Pogue and these sort of consumer technology columnists that had so much power. Talk to us a little bit about B2B tech PR. What is B2B tech PR? Yeah, that's that's where I came from, man. You know, that's where I came from. And I was trained very carefully to understand that B2B editorial, and I'll back into the PR thing in a second, but B2B editorial is service journalism. And so there's two communities, right? There's the buyers and the sellers. As an editor, 
I fly the flag of the buyer. I want to provide perspective, data, pricing info, case studies, everything I possibly can to make the buying decision easier and more effective. If I'm on the supply side of things, and there was lots of editorial interest in in, in B2B edit, it's like, well, what's going on on the competitive landscape? What does the reseller landscape look like? Um, all of the sort of supply side issues and, and trade media, B2B trade media also concentrates on that. So if I'm in B2B PR now, I want to provide value. And, and actually it's really, Eric, it's sort of a form of professional development. Right. You want to be a better professional on the supply side if you're on the supply side. And likewise, you want to be a savvier buyer on the demand side. And B2B PR always has that in mind. Just as journalists see themselves as service journalists, PR people also need to see themselves in service either to the supplier uh, or the buyer. Break that down for a supplier a buyer, because it seems sort of inside baseball. So can, can you just sort of dumb it down for me a little bit? <laughs> well, if you're a software vendor uh, or if you're an integrator or a reseller and you sell technology products and services, then you have a particular set of needs. Now, if you're in B2B PR, you're probably representing that community in some way, shape or form. And good B2B PR sort of gets out of that and role plays in terms of what would buyers want? What would the demand side want to be hearing from us besides me, Tarzan, you, Jane, and, you know, we're better than the other guys. Um, and, and bad B2B PR is a little bit lopsided favoring the messaging of the vendors and the people that are out there selling the stuff because that that is not helpful to buyers, right? If they want partisan, we're great content, they can go to the vendor's website and read it. No, the <clears throat> the editors want balance. So, so um, make it practical for me, and I'll just throw out an example, but you can change it if you want to use another one. Like okay. if you were consulting with a CRM provider and you wanted to help them present a message in a way that would resonate better with journalists, how would you go about that? What's your process? If I were representing a CRM company, I would want to frame the value proposition in terms of, let's say, flexibility. We have the best API set where we can integrate with anything under the sun that any customer of ours could possibly uh, integrate into the dashboard. And we're easier to program and maintain the code for, and we're also um, easier to do business with with anybody else. See, those are those are value propositions for buyers, not for the company themselves. So that's, that's because thing. they're not unique, and like pretty much everybody in B two B tech throws around productivity gain, interoperability. You know the same stuff. It's so hard to find a unique differentiator. Does it matter? Oh, it totally it totally matters. I mean, there's an ecosystem beyond just what you claim as a vendor. There's the analyst community, there's case studies, there's um, reviews like on G2 or, 
or um, heck, even Yelp. You know, I mean, there's there's a or Glassdoor. Man, that's a great place to work. They they recruit and retain top people. So there's a lot of different inputs beyond just the messaging that 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 goes into the persona that that B2B companies can put out there. It's a great point. You know, when I talk to millennial buyers, they're all over G2. In spite of the fact that most of the G2 reviewers are going to be either frontline workers or maybe middle managers, you're not getting a lot of sort of C-suite perspective there. But it is definitely influencing the buying, uh, you know, process. It's definitely influencing the shortlist. That's for sure. How how have you seen tech media change, broad or broadly over the last twenty years? Well, beyond the cliche that it used to be in print. Yep. Um, I, I think part of it is the expertise, the IQ. Uh, product reviewers, uh, thought leaders, they were all highly concentrated in media brands because media brands had the means of distribution. They, The internet was still out there. I mean, I started Media Survey in 98, uh, which was only four years after Andreessen came up with uh, the browser there. But uh, it was still sort of the Wild West, and most... Uh, decision makers relied on media brands either in print or you know, maybe a little bit online. And, and, but what happened was when search became the obvious thing, like I can learn about anything at any time. Um, okay, now I'm less dependent on media brands because I have instant self-service through search. Also, the talent would gradually get headhunted out of the media brands, particularly in B2B. I don't know if you remember the old days when there's like a dozen, two dozen publications, all of whom had labs, and they would review products thoroughly. But that, that, that stopped gradually because the lab directors were getting paid twice to go work for Cisco or you know, go work for Oracle. And there's this big talent drain. So, um, so those are the two big things. The impact of search, which allowed you to get you know, information at your fingertips. And then the other thing was the talent drain that uh, media brands just simply couldn't pay the really smart, hands-on people enough. I mean, I can remember <clears throat> early into it um, when journalists started to take early buyouts as a result of ad revenue moving from the classifieds over to Craigslist and advertising revenue moving over to pay-per-click. And, and, and the big challenge as a PR person was I, I didn't, when I was pitching stories, I wasn't confident that the person that I was pitching to had been in the in, on the desk long enough to <laughs> have enough perspective to put the news in context. That's a problem. Yeah, you it's know? a real problem, and it seems to. I mean, it, it seems to still be a problem. No. Well, the, the 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 this gets into a whole other branch of our conversation. We may as well get into it now. The fact is that the the editorial side of B two B now is in the attention aggregation business, which means if you go to Computer World right now, which is like the venerable B two B computer publication, it was launched in 1967 before y'all were born, and if you go on that site right now, it's all tips and tricks. Where it's you know here's how Azure, you know here's some Azure 
uh, error messages and what they mean, or here's, you know, here's how to manage your migration. And it, it, it's, it's out of the news business because that sort of stuff is like hardcore service journalism, but it's, it's sort of residual content. It, it, it's just as valuable next month as it is today. And so they just have not been able to employ the same sorts of, of people that, that they used to. And so they've just sort of changed what it is, what their, their value proposition is, that it's much more long tail. Let's put it that way. You know, a lot of the B2B publications that I study, um, they're really getting into the long tail business. And, you know, maybe they don't have big spikes when Apple announces a big machine and all that. But, you know, over time, they get this steady content on oh, this pavilion on digital transformation. You know, what's what's new in digital transformation? And it's sort of like incremental, but it's like rock solid, reliable traffic all the time, 365. That's a big change. Yeah, organic search traffic is much less volatile than news cycles. Um, but I wonder, you know, I, I look at like the podcasting space, you know, there's a lot of, po- this is a podcast about digital marketing and this specific podcast is about the earned media component of it. There are mm-hmm. a lot of podcasts about digital marketing and the ones that are the most popular are the daily short form podcasts. So they don't really go deep at all. They're the same sort of content that you just mentioned. And you think about sort of the attention scarcity market that we're, we're working in today. Do you mm-hmm. think, is there a market for long form content or do you think that that is pretty much gonna die? No, it's never gonna die. Uh-uh. The uh, long form content, particularly in podcasts is in the really dweeby deep tech stuff. I'll give you a couple of examples. There's a brand called Packet Pushers, packetpushers.net. I don't know if you've heard of them. There's like one guy in the US and two two people in the UK. And they have a little bit of earned media, but mostly it's sponsor, vendor, vendor sponsor, deep podcasts about all these particular APIs and that particular platform from Juniper that just came out and let's get behind this and let's open the hood and see what we got here. That's long form, very successful, enduring content. That brand has been around 10 years and they've made money incrementally every year since they launched. And that's because the scarcity of the tech info in every other realm, even even Gartner and Forrester don't don't get super dweeby technical, you know, the the analyst firms deal in implications, right? How it's going to affect business overall or this segment, that segment. So if you're really technical, you have to go to a podcast. So I would imagine, and I defer to you, Eric, because this is your world, but I would bet that like back when ad tech was, (laughs) it was still on the way up. I'll bet that there were a lot of podcasts that really got into um, the technical backgrounds of, of, of some of the ad syndication networks and, and sort of the ones and zeros of it. Do those podcasts still exist? They do, but you know, they're niche, it's their niche podcasts. And if you think about the long form content that's out there, you know, the Leo Laporte stuff. Yeah. Okay. He's uh, super technical. Or the Steve Gilmore stuff. You know, that's basically a bunch of guys sitting around shooting the shit for three hours and it yep. doesn't really have much re- residual value uh, because it is newsy and they are talking about what's happening on today. And it's the type of thing you have on and in the background as you code. You know, it's not appointment or subscription media. 
Yeah, but they're still doing conceptual stuff. If I were a uh, uh, a team leader in DevOps in development operations, yep. I wouldn't get that much out of the Gilmore gang, uh, but I would get a lot out of like the new stack. Or if I cared about Kubernetes, or if I cared about open source and security, zero day things, you know, 2020 zero day problems within open source. Um, Steve Gilmore is not going to talk about it, but but new stack would um, maybe even like an info world might. So I think the positive horizon for B2B content long form is the more technical it is, the uh, the more loyal the audience and the more bankable uh, the audience. So that's that's what I see from where in my world. I was I was talking to a friend uh, about you know the pandemic and life on Zoom, and he looked at me and he said, "My life is so boring. <laughs> I, I just go from Zoom call to Zoom call. It's killing me. I can't look sideways. Everything is boring. <laughs> it's like I am bored stiff. And uh, and you know we've seen more change. Like I just published a. Uh, a post-pandemic email marketing best practices guide. Uh-huh. We have seen more change in email marketing in the last six months than in the last six years. So here's 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 my question: When it comes to tech media, how has tech media changed since the pandemic? Depends on what neighborhood you're looking at. Um, I did a couple of big editorial audits in March. And what I found was B2B journalists weren't the least bit affected. They said, our readers still have projects to complete. They have products to buy. Life is marching on. And more than ever before, our systems need to be, need to have integrity. And so we need the same sort of stuff we've always needed. That surprised me, right? I'll just keep it within B2B because that's our framework for today. Come July or August, then it became more like work from home. Or like my favorite piece was, ZDNet did a piece on, oh, you have one of these? You have one of these? And, oh, you're working on confidential information that normally would be a no-brainer if you went to the office? Do you unplug this thing? Because if you don't, you might be legally liable. You don't know who hears this. I'm holding up for people that are listening audio only. I'm holding up an echo. Um, And so in phase two of the pandemic, editorial response, it went from uh, nothing to see here to, oh my God, you know, now the workplace has changed and that has a direct impact on on supply chains and, and all that other stuff. So we're on the cusp right now between phase two and phase three. And now that the Northern hemisphere is cooling off and and uh, a lot of the let's open up for business is sort of retrenching a little bit, it's going to be interesting to see how Uh, editors respond in phase three. But those were the two distinct phases uh, in 2020. Just a a note uh, to listeners, if you're interested in the state of voice search, I just interviewed the CMO from SEMrush 
and they just published a report on the state of voice search for Amazon Echo, for Siri, and for Google Assistant. And I'm posting uh, a link where you can get that in the uh, in the chat there. Um, can you hear me? Okay? Can you hear? Can you hear me? Okay. How's is there a lag? No, I, I hear you great. Okay, good. Let me ask you how. What, what is the role of social media in tech PR? That's changed too. Um, if you were to ask me three or four years ago, I would say, well, you know, the uh, audience development people sit down with the editors and they look at all the social shares and, you know, you might want to sort of skew the next quarter's worth of headline writing or uh, coverage decisions based on what really resonates out there. And that's changed. And it's changed because the uh, algorithms in, um, in, in a lot of the platforms have become less organic. And a lot of people are not simply sort of surfing their, their feed now to say, oh, I'll just read whatever, you know, is served because it's much more uh, commercial. So, um, I think that the, um, the inside the psychology of a lot of the B2B publishers, they're moving away from, let's see if we can broaden the readership uh, tent and get more people to come to our site. Uh, the advertisers are really pushing the publishers for more engagement. They're less concerned about the numbers, gross, the gross numbers, and they're much more concerned with um, engagement, time on site, and they are also concerned with authority. Like, does a particular B2B publication really have, like, go down to bedrock on X? And, and so I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. IDG made a decision in early 2020, IDG is a very big global tech publisher, that they would ask their, their, um, publications to play particular roles. So, for example, with digital transformation, um, all of the editorial content is concentrated on CIO.com. Sort of makes sense. But you can barely, if you, if you search computer world or info world right now and type in digital transformation, you'll see basically bupkis, which is really unbelievable, except when you think about, well, if I'm IDG, I want everybody to play their position. So all the digital transformation stuff, I'm going to house within CIO.com. I'm going to have a lot of cross-linking and, you know, the algorithms are really going to reward authority and going to boost my page rank because I have this disproportionate concentration of digital transformation stuff on one title instead of distributing it confetti-like, you know, all the way across the portfolio, right? It's the same sort of thing with, uh, with crypto, all the crypto stuff that IDG runs, it's concentrated in computer world. You won't read much about crypto at all in network world or info world or because there's been a programmatic decision to concentrate um, fruitful topics, fertile topics within a single title. And that way, it's just easier to, to cross-link and, and increase time on site because we all know, oh, read more about this, read more about this. Well, you know, you, you want people to do that to stay on the site. So that is a very big change, and I think it's a smart change. So um, what I'm hearing is that there's almost like a keyword landscape that you can uh, attach to different media outlets. And I'm wondering if, you know, there's any merit in, you know, sort of 
taking those different outlets' websites, plugging them into some sort of a, a search marketing tool like an Ahrefs or an SEMrush or a Moz, looking at what keywords they're ranking for, and then and then actually targeting your pitches based on those keywords. Let me tell you something. You know, in my world, there aren't enough people like you that could just connect those dots fast. I mean, you understand what pillar content is. Um, and you, you've been on the HubSpot site and all the glossaries and all the stuff, right? Like in my world, I'm, I come from the earned media world and everybody's like scratching their head saying, you know, what is this stuff? But, but the, the, the audience development people and the top editors and the publishers are all over this. So absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, I've written about this a couple of times. If I'm in PR, I, you know, I really want to know, like pay attention to the pavilions and the special reports on the site and look at, look at what it is that they, that, that, that their core content is and, and pitch to it because that's the tailwind, you know, use the tailwind. So that is really um, how I see B2B changing this last two or three years and social media to get back to your original question is less important because there's too much one and done, you know, too much churn. They don't care about it because the advertisers penalize that. They want smaller numbers of readers who spend more time on the site. So we've got Sally Olmstead in the house. Sally Olmstead was my colleague at Rogers and Cowan. She ran tech PR for, for decades, man. She knows everybody. So she can pick up the phone and she can call somebody. But there may be a lot of other people in this call here who are newcomers, who are new to tech PR. They don't know anybody. They don't have anybody's number. Nobody's going to take their call. So what do you have advice? What advice do you have for newbies on breaking through and building relationships with tech reporters? Well, it's, it, I'm going to use an agricultural metaphor. It's like, if you want to harvest something, you can't just do it in 48 hours. Uh, you've got to think about all the environmental factors and you've got to take calendar time in order to do it. Um, that doesn't help you in the short term, but in the long term, there's no substitute for downloading the media kit, reading the about page, reading, going to LinkedIn and looking at the masthead and then looking how the editors describe the, the properties that they work for. Look at their Twitter bios and look at how they describe the, the, the publications that they work for and just immerse yourself in the psychology of how these editors think and what they think they're doing. And then factor that in using language that they themselves use, either individually or, you know, at the brand level. Use that language in your pitches so that they immediately, no matter what it is that you're pitching, they sense an affinity like, well, you know, these people, you know, sort of know what we do. Uh, 98 out of 100 PR people are staring at spreadsheets looking for targets, looking for contact info. They have, you know, quotas to meet. And they, they aren't the least bit qualitative. And the more junior you are, the less qualitative you tend, you tend to be. I, I think it should be the opposite. The less you know, the more analytical you should be up front to put yourself in the position of the, of the culture and the mission of the people that are key clicking these stories out and try to simulate 
how they think, and then use those concepts in your approach to them. You know, I've long believed that it's actually an economics problem because, um, you know, clients come to PR because they want coverage. And just because, even if you write the perfect pitch to an editor, there's no, you know, guarantee they're going to read it. They may just dump it anyways. And so, you know, casting a broad net does matter. It does increase your chances of getting some coverage. And then that leads to the whole spray and pray approach, which I don't think is effective, but I understand why it is what it is because PR people feel like they've got to cast a wide net to get coverage because that's why the clients came to them in the first place. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. I, I have learned some things over the years though. And that is the, uh, the acronym SOV, right? Share of voice. And what I've found is you'll get some clients that want coverage by the pound, but, but the better clients out there will say, you know, I'm willing to do an exclusive with TechCrunch or whoever you think I should do an exclusive with if I get a couple of things in return, number one, some prominent play. And also I don't want this story scrolling off the front door in 90, 90 minutes. You know, I, I, I want to you know, negotiate some sort of like ongoing uh, presence. And um, I also, I'm going to pressure you, Mr. or Ms. Agency person to see that, you know, the story to the best of your ability, the story is really based more or less on us. You know, I, I don't want to wind up in a trend story. I don't want my big news or my funding round or my new CEO or whatever the news peg is. I don't want to see that subsumed in some trend story. I, I want to be the story, you know, this is my big thing. So I, I think a good agency has the chops to be able to amplify share of voice and, and uh, other agencies, you know, may not be as good as that. I think that's a frontier for how agencies can compete with one another is um, competing on share of voice, not necessarily volume of coverage, but SOV. And this is one of the things that I do, you know, I have these meetings, you know, all week long with the people ranging from account coordinators up to the founders. And, you know, this is a big deal, particularly the in-house ones, not the agency ones, but the, the in-house ones, you know, they, they, they want to be the star of the show. And, and so that's, uh, that's, that's a challenge for everybody, but uh, I make a living at it. Yeah. Hey, you know, when I was in, in public relations, one of the accounts my agency represented was the Grammy Awards. And we would actually greet the winners of the Grammys in the wings and escort them through a backstage press room uh, organized by media format. So we had a section for photographers. There was a section for print news media. There was a section for television and radio. And there was a section for individual outlets who commanded big audiences like MTV and BET and VH1. And the last year that I worked in that press room, there was a new section, new area, that we were told to bring the winners by called the Internet Room. And, um, you know, there was this Internet Room, and they were going to try to do two things that at the time were, were very innovative. They were going to try to do live text chat, and they were going to try to upload images to the Internet in real time. And I remember, you know, bringing people by the internet room and, you know, trying to get them to stop. And I could not convince anybody of any scale to stop at the internet room. So we got like, you know, 
best new age artist and, you know, all the smaller uh, winners that weren't welcome in the one-on-ones would stop by the internet room. But I remember seeing it and thinking to myself, man, we've been credentialing media for the last six months. We've been turning 80% of them away because of fire marshal restrictions. And now you can just bring the internet as a portal right into this event. It's going to change everything. And I actually left the agency and I launched a company called IPR Software, which is an online tool that lets people manage an online newsroom and um, kind of like, you know, the one at the Grammys. Uh, Today, actually, IPR Software, um, which I sold about five years ago, and I'm still on the board, but I'm not involved with the day-to-day, is much more than a newsroom service. It's actually a digital asset management platform, and it powers content marketing websites, and it does it for startups and, you know, small business, but also enterprise. Verizon's a customer. LinkedIn's a customer. LinkedIn's a customer. So, As you look out at the next year and you think about how you're going to improve your productivity and compete more effectively online, particularly at a time when trade shows and conferences are no longer an option for generating deal flow, check out PR software. Uh, You can can check them out at ericschwartzman.com forward slash IPR software. Uh, They're offering the first month free through the end of the year for earned media podcast listeners. So tell them we sent you. Um, Sam, what's the best way to engage B2B online influencers? Here's how I would do it. Um, I think people do it the hard way by pitching them or say, hey, that was a great column or whatever it is. Um, I think the best way to influence someone is to identify the people who the target thinks are important and be mentioned by those people. Um, and, and to create credibility. So I'll give you an example. I use a tool called TweetDeck. I build columns within TweetDeck. If I want to get to know somebody, if I want to pitch an editor to get them to do an interview with me, I look at who follows them and I create a column in TweetDeck and I look at who their support system is and who they um, tweet with and, and, uh, and, and I work back from there. And so when that editor here's my name from somebody, maybe I don't, they don't hear it directly from me, but they might hear it from that person at uh, Carnegie Mellon or, you know, wherever it is, ah, you know, it's a word of mouth, right? So I think that's the single most effective way to get on the radar of a B2B influencer is understand who they look up to, who they consort with online, particularly on Twitter, and get to know those people and work back from there. Talk to us a little bit about the state of the uh, industry analyst sector. Um, is, that a, is that a healthy sector? Are, uh, are, are B2B uh, technology companies just as eager to brief them as they ever were? And mm-hmm. what, if anything, has changed in that world? Um, remarkably little. Uh, there's probably you know, more people that sort of go out on their own. But um, the analysts were... Um, greatly benefited by the demise of the uh, technical chops of the press. When, 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 the, when the, the trade media became unable to deliver the real muscle tissue of how technologies worked and what the implications were, they picked up all that business. And the other thing that they, they were smart about is they really invested in face-to-face events. 
uh, now it's interesting to see what's going to happen, right? Because, you know, they, they have to recreate the magic of their face-to-face -face events online. And that can be done. Um, it's becoming apparent through Hopin and there's a couple of other platforms out there that you could probably deliver effective face-to-face uh, -face events. But um, beyond that, the thing that the analysts have that the reporters don't, and I, after a couple of beers, I've had many a reporter um, complain sort of enviously about analysts because the vendors and the technology people and the vendor community can talk to analysts confidentially. Whereas reporters, you're always playing cat and mouse, right? They always want you to be on the record. So, so the people who really know stuff um, are much more comfortable talking to analysts. And it works on the, on, the, on, the, on the case study side too. Analysts can call up any sort of Procter & Gamble, whatever conglomerate all the way down, airlines, and they can get the inside dope about whether a product really works or not. That's why I mentioned G2 earlier, Eric, because you know those software reviews are as close as the public can get to how a B2B product or something as a service you know, actually works in the real world. Analysts have total carte blanche. They know all that stuff. So that's why if I were budgeting, if I were a CMO and I were budgeting, you know, I would make sure I would budget maximum money for at least one of the mega people like Gartner or Forrester and then, and then one or two niche analysts within a particular segment. And I, I, would, I would over budget for that. And I know that might be, a, you know, a, apostasy from a, an editor saying that. But, you know, honestly, if I were CMO, that's what I would do. And those are the reasons why I would do it. I remember um, uh, in the days when uh, you know digital advertising was 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 growing up, there was that famous uh, comment, and I think it was from Les Moonves at time at the time he was the head of CBS, and he said, "You know, we're being forced to trade our analog dollars for digital pennies." Oh yeah, I remember that. You know? And and so you think about what you were saying with respect to live events. Yeah. Or maybe they could be recreated online, but we have this perception that stuff online isn't quite as valuable from a monetary standpoint as True. stuff that's tangible or analog. So True. I wonder, what do you think? I mean, as you know, COVID looks like it's going to be around for you know a considerable time here. I agree. Uh, so, um, so what do you think in terms of how this is going to impact the analyst firms? I mean, they were relying on these major events for revenue don't have that anymore. You see that when they when they convert these events to virtual events, they can't charge as much. Um, so how do you think that nets out for them? I think in 2021, they're going to take a little bit of a hit. But I think also that there is going to be a new kind of marketer who's going to be able to specialize in monetizing the activity of people who participate in online events. Because if you just push everything back a little bit, online events, it's not like badging somebody and you're walking around you know, the sands in Las Vegas. I mean, you know every single freaking thing that anybody does on that platform. It's all recorded. So it's the same thing as a website. You can build really smart analytics and 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 maybe do some data cross-tabbing and, and really dig into the, the behavior of people who participate 
in, um, in online events. And then you've got a very compelling sales story if you can figure out how to monetize it, who wants to pay for that. So, uh, but, but CMOs, uh, because this thing is so 2020, nobody has that inherent skill. But you watch as people churn through marketing jobs and, and there's going to be a premium paid for people who ha had experience in 2020 monetizing the data and the behavior, whether it's cross-selling content or cross-selling memberships or, or creating new partnerships. Um, there's a lot of things that could be fungible in terms of uh, value, but, but we're only in zero year here, you know, we're in zero year right now. But if I were, if I were CMO, I mean, 20 years ago, if you specialized in social media and social media was around 20 years ago, people don't really, you know, remember that, but you know, that was, that was around, uh, you know, with, um, what the hell was that music site? MySpace. You know what I mean? It was like early days. But if you knew a lot about that, then you could get top dollar as a professional because you had this sort of niche understanding of something that was on the way up. So I think that's what I would do if I were a Gardner Forrester, although I, I would understand how to monetize that stuff. Let, let's get back to media. So you know, there's been a number of sort of it girl media outlets in the tech space. I think about Red Herring. What a hot <laughs> that was. I think about industry, years ago. industry standard. Yeah. Oh, God. Remember what a hot publication that, that old. was? So yeah. let me ask you, who are the hot, who's the it girl now in the tech space? Well, you know, the, the, literally the it girl is Jessica Lesson, who uh, runs a uh, subscription only uh, site called The Information. Pound for pound, my opinion, they have the highest IQ any publication there is. And it, not a lot of people read it because it's expensive. It's like $350 a year and you can get an advanced subscription for $750 a year. But they have headhunted people out of Forbes, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, The Trades, and they have an unbelievable, highly skilled staff and they're very aggressive reporters. And their audience is like upstream. The people that subscribe to that stuff are VCs and uh, people who are sort of on the, uh, the funding and sort of the rainmaking side of things. And um, they, they have tremendous credibility. They're, without a doubt, to me, that's, and they've been around, I think, five years, maybe, something like that. Um, in terms of broad reach, um, CNBC and Business Insider are neck and neck for sort of like our generation of Forbes and Fortune. Um, CNBC gets absolutely enormous traffic and they have the video, they have the television, they have this sort of integrated footprint that BI would love to have, but they don't, you know? Um, so, the, so those three publications are must like the information, which is uh, industry stuff and a lot of B2B in there. And then CNBC and business insider. And notice I'm not saying the journal. Who else besides that um, online? Like, what about there's an outlet called Cheddar that does a lot of business coverage. I mean, there's a lot of these new players out there sort of popping up. Are they on your radar? Yeah, they're on. Well, Cheddar's on my radar, but the thing is that they they don't, you know, in a world of platforms, new media brands just 
pound, you know, just pound for pound aren't as interesting anymore. Uh, you know, no one, no one really cares about cheddar. You know, they, they don't, but I'll tell you to, to give you, to give you a sincere answer and not to deflect it. Um, I would, if I were in PR and marketing, I would pay a lot of attention to medium because medium is both a platform where anybody who can fog a mirror can post on Medium. But Medium also has invested in its own publications, its own Medium-developed brands, right? So they they have One Zero, uh, which is uh, about technology and science. They have a publication called Marker, which focuses on small business. And they've been able to recruit a lot of pretty uh, high-end talent for those publications. Dave Gershkorn quit Quartz to go over there. Uh, Damon Barris is the uh, editor-in-chief of One Zero. He spent many years at uh, Huffington Post. And so um, I know time is short here, so I would just say read up on the Medium publications. And collectively, I think that's sort of a newish um, source of influence going forward. Any thoughts on uh, for for folks uh, on the call that are in digital marketing and PR and kind of want to look at technology in that space? Any outlets you like for that? For um, for the sort of the digital marketing stuff, digital marketing technology, um, you know, email marketing technology, social media marketing technology, uh, uh, media monitoring technology. I mean, it's a niche space, so. Well, there's, there's, there's titles out there, but there hasn't been a lot of investment by publishers in that space because there's been contraction in the space and the publishers are like totally trailing edge indicators. You know, they follow the money, but almost, <laughs> almost, almost when it's too late to do so. So, you know, you got the, the click Z's and the drums and, you know, those sorts of publications. The thing that I would pay attention to is the the burgeoning world of newsletters and podcasts. And we haven't mentioned Substack yet. Substack is totally flavor of the month out there. Substack is a a newsletter publishing platform that is attracting dozens and dozens and dozens of independent experts, and they handle all the monetization and the the content management system. So if I were in digital marketing, I would go to substack.com and start searching for the the niches that I would care about most and start following those sort of lone wolves. And you might find yourself some sort of 2021 up-and-coming influencers who might even pay attention to what it is you have to say. Yeah. One of the best answers I got to that question was um, from one of the guys at Outreach. And he basically said, look, you know, we sell software licenses. So if we're selling to salespeople, we can sell a ton of licenses. If we're selling to PR marketing, we can't sell as many. So it's not as hot of a sector. And obviously, if the publishers are following the money, you know, there's not going to be as much ad dollars there because they're not selling as many software licenses. Um, Talk to me about uh, sort of the PR tech stack nowadays. What, what, are the, what are the hot tools you're seeing that your clients are working with to improve productivity and media relations effectiveness? I don't really know that much about tools. You know, I'm an editor and I, I spend most of my time um, talking with editors. Um, the tools that, I mean, is tr- trackers not new? Um, I know people have sort of looked at uh, Tracker as, you know, something interesting. Uh, But I don't really, um, I don't really 
work in that world, honestly. Got it. Um, I am going to invite Terry, who's had a couple questions, to come on and ask a question. But while I do, um, let me ask you something. If you were a startup, knowing what you know, if you were at a startup and you were hiring a tech PR firm, yeah, what are the most important questions you'd ask them when you're interviewing them and deciding who to hire? This is what I'd ask them. What is the most confrontational thing you can imagine yourself saying to us? I'll, I'll say that again. What is the most confrontational thing that you could imagine saying to us? And the reason I think that's an important question is, is that so many agencies just kiss ass and they'll say damn near anything. This is my experience. Now, maybe I'm, you know, slurring you here, but I deal every day with the AE and the senior AE that has a client that is just simply barely newsworthy, if that. So I think it's the agency's responsibility to feel confident in saying, this ain't going to work or you know, what have you. And you have to figure out what is the limit of sort of insubordination, also known as honesty and candor. Because once you get in that marriage, you know, you, you really need to be able to, to be frank with one another. So that I would ask that question. Anything else? Any other questions? Um, I would ask, um, if, uh, if, there were, if I needed you to get three people on the telephone in late 2020 in the next hour to talk about anything, um, who would those three people be? Because a lot of uh, agencies will say, oh, yeah, well, I know this person, that person. You know, they're just, you know, they usually don't. Uh, or they think they do, but the editor actually says, oh, who are they, right? So um, I, would, I would be very specific about, tell me who you can get on the phone. Like, oh, Mary, yeah, hang on a second. I'll be with you in one second. Oh, sorry, I got to go. I got to talk to Mary. You know, that. How, how many agencies can deliver that? You know, you got to find that out. Anything else? This is such I gold. This is such gold. That's why I'm, I'm pushing you on this. Is it? Yeah, I know. You are I think it is. It's really gold for this audience. Um, I don't know. The, 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 last, the last thing I would ask is, um, think, about the, think about the person that you just lost or most recently lost, like, you know, a real star performer in your agency. Um, why did you lose them? And uh, could it have been avoided? Because agencies are nothing more than IQ. You know, they used to walk through the door every day. Now they now they log in on Zoom and look at this green dot on their laptop. Um, so um, there's a lot of churn. You know, uh, one answer is, well, you know, I could get a 25% raise if I quit and went to work for the other people. I mean, whatever it is. But, you know, if I'm a client, I don't want to be dealing with a revolving door, you know, and I don't have the time to do the due diligence to you know, figure out, you know, I can deal with, you know, junior people, you know, the, the account is sold by the senior people in the agency, but then of course, you know, they're biz dev people primarily. So they're going to migrate the actual work down to AE level. And it's not so bad because it's cheaper per hour, but you know, you do want some continuity because you got to get people up to speed and ramp them up. So uh, that would be the third question. Third question is, you know, the last person, you know, all-star that you really lost, how come? 
and could it have been avoided? And, and see how they deal with that, you know, see how defensive they are about it. You can tell right away if they're, if they're defensive about it. Uh, Terry Kelman, you have a question? Yeah, I'd like to ask sort of a higher level uh, question than the ones I put on there. Um, I work with uh, salespeople to make sure they can uh, engage with uh, uh, high level customers and technology and so forth. And there is always, most of the big companies I've worked in, and even the, the small startups, there's this uh, gigantic wall. It's uh, 100 miles high and 20 miles uh, wide between what goes on in the street and what's going on in uh, the CMO's office, and especially in stuff that's digital. Uh, even recently, advice from um, uh, sales management and marketing down to salespeople is, yeah, get on Facebook and say nice things about our company. How should uh, sales take advantage of all the brilliant work that's going on in digital marketing or what should digital marketer, marketers do uh, to think about and help salespeople who are face-to-face, -face, you know, virtually with a customer? Gee, I don't know if I have the expertise to answer that because um, I don't I don't really work in that world, and I work in you know earned media, earned media editorial. Um, I don't know if I could really answer that one effectively. Fair enough. Um, yeah, um, Sam, if someone is interested in getting a hold of you and learning more about uh, Sam Whitmore's media survey, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, well, it's, it, the website's mediasurvey.com, and there's an about page on there, and there's sort of a short cheat sheet on benefits that accrue to uh, subscribers, and it's tilted more toward agencies, but uh, brands get some value out of that too. So it's mediasurvey.com slash about. Got it. If you're logging in late, if you weren't here at the beginning, uh, next week we have a B2B social media influencer panel talking about the Talkwalker 2021 social media trends report. Um, it basically lays out the top 10 trends for 2021 in social media marketing based on research from the Talkwalker social media analytics platform. And we'll have Jenny Dietrich, Neil Schaefer, and Christina Garnett on a panel talking about the findings from that report. We hope you'll be able to join us for that. Um, and I also uh, want to tell you that you can download that report at ericschwartzman.com forward slash Talkwalker. And I'd also like to thank our sponsor, IPR Software. Um, again, if you are looking to be more effective with your media relations in 2021, uh, they're doing the first month free for Earn Media Podcast listeners. And you can get more information at ericschwartzman.com forward slash IPR software. Sam, great connecting with you again. Yeah, same um, here. And thanks everyone for showing up. We'll see you next week. 